I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Redemption Bible Church. Um, we think of you often and pray for you and, and just pray God would bless you. And it is just a great privilege uh, to stand with you and to worship with you this morning. And so I thank you for the opportunity to come and be with you this Lord's Day. In C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, the lion Aslan is an allegorical character representing Jesus. He is described to other characters in the story as wild and not a tame lion. Aslan's not some out-of-control beast. He has self-control, but he will not be controlled by any other character in the story. No one's going to put a collar with a bell around Aslan's neck. As a matter of fact, it becomes very evident if you read those stories that that would be a really bad idea. It would not end well for you if you tried. It becomes obvious that Aslan isn't at anyone's mercy. And as a matter of fact, everybody else is at his. Now, the Aslan character in these books, of course, does not adequately represent Jesus Christ. All allegories and analogies and metaphors attempting to describe who and what God is will stretch and stretch, and they'll stretch to the breaking point and fall apart under the weight of a God who is without measure. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying to explain who God is in a way that people will understand. The Bible does that. The Bible describes God as a bridegroom, a husband, a, a father, a shepherd, a builder. A... The Bible describes God with anthropomorphic language, referring to his finger and hand, mouth, heart, foot, eyes. All of these descriptors can be helpful for us to understand who God is. There is a potential problem, however. We run the risk of humanizing God so much that God becomes in some way limited or finite, just like we are. And unlike us, God is infinite. He cannot be measured. The infinite nature of God has been described by some theologians like this. He is not subject to any of the limitations of humanity or of creation in general. He is far greater than everything he has made, far greater than anything else that exists. We can become uh, overwhelmed by things, but God will never be. We have a tendency in our flesh to scale God down to some, someone with whom we're more comfortable. Frankly, we prefer a tame lion. But God is infinitely powerful. God is totally sovereign over everything that exists. 
an all-powerful, sovereign God who does all his holy will and no one can stay his hand is not a God who will ever be popular in our culture. In fact, a God like that will be hated by many. This is why it is so common for people to formulate in their own minds, with their own imaginations, a more acceptable replacement. A.W. Pink lived from 1886 to 1952. He was a pastor at several churches around the United States. Listen to what he says in his book, The Sovereignty of God. He says this, The concept of deity, which prevails most widely today, even among those who profess to give heed to the scriptures, is a miserable caricature, a blasphemous travesty of the truth. The God of the 20th century is a helpless, effeminate being who commands the respect of no really thoughtful man. The God of the popular mind is the creation of a maudlin sentimentality, The God of many, a present-day pulpit, is an object of pity rather than of awe-inspiring reverence. So let me give you a a little bit of a roadmap of what what the plan is. Where Where are we going this morning? Where we're going is up the mountain with Moses. Moses is about to encounter God. And God is about to declare some things about himself. And that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. We're going to see in the, in the few verses that I have uh, marked out for us to think about this morning, uh, many things, but I'm going to give you a list of seven things describing who God is. And I want you to see, as we talk about those seven things, that We are going to be, if these things are true about God, led to the cross. Who God is and what the gospel is are inseparable. And to change one is to change another. So if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 34. And uh, before we read the text, I want to tell you something about a man named Christian Smith. Christian Smith was a sociology professor at the University of North Carolina, and since he has moved on to apparently greener pastures at Notre Dame as a professor. And about 20 years ago, Mr. Smith conducted a study. He called it the National Study of Youth and Religion. And it was extensive. It involved thousands and thousands of folks who were between 13 and 17 years old. And the goal of the study was to identify, to really sort of drill down and find out what do these kids really believe. And what he found, what they really believe is what Mr. Smith eventually called moralistic therapeutic deism. And he defined moralistic therapeutic deism with what I'll call five pillars of that belief system. The first one was a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. 
Okay. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Getting a little less comfortable. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. We're, we're, we're outside the guardrails now, pretty, pretty wide. It's going to get worse here. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Hmm. So this is a man-centered, God is my co-pilot, butler, personal assistant, type of theology that just cannot be reconciled with the God of the scriptures. One has got to be wrong and one has got to be right. Listen to what Dr. Albert Moeller had to say about the results of this study. He said the moralistic therapeutic deism that these researchers identify and as as the most fundamental faith posture and belief system of American teenagers appears in a larger sense to reflect the culture as a whole. Clearly, this general, generalized conception of a belief system is what appears to characterize the beliefs of vast millions of Americans, both young and old. So I don't know if you caught that in there. It would be easy. I'm 50 years old. It would be easy for me to say those kids... But Dr. Moeller concludes, and I think he's right, that where'd they learn it from? You know, we, it's a bigger problem than just the, the teenagers. It is, or at least it was, sort of the, the default understanding of who God is in American culture. That was 20 years ago. I don't think it's gotten better if it's changed at all. Moralistic therapeutic deism just won't work with a big, ferocious, glorious God who created and exercises lordship over a, compared to God at least, small man. So that's enough about things that aren't true. Let's move on to uh, who God is. Let's look at a more credible source for our understanding of who God is. Let's look at the text. Exodus 34. I'm going to read verses 5 through 7 just to to get us started here. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now let's just stop right there and pray. Father, we are 
here to, to, to press into you, to know you more. We, we ask that you would draw us in. We ask that you would allow us to stand under the shower of your goodness and grace. Amen. So I'm going to give you seven attributes of God that we see in this passage. Number one, God's mercy. God's mercy is God's goodness to those in misery and distress. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 says this. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So we, under, we, we need to understand something, though, about God's mercy. God does not show mercy because the central goal of life is for us to be happy and feel good about ourselves. No. He shows mercy first for the sake of his own name and to demonstrate his own glory. And that is true. But we need to understand this also, and this is critical to recognize about God. God is not indifferent to your pain and suffering. God is not indifferent to your pain and suffering. Number two, God's grace. God's grace is God's favor toward those who deserve only punishment. Grace is in a very real sort of rubber-meets-the-road sense the opposite of fairness. If grace was given because it was owed or earned, well then it wouldn't be grace. And it is important that we not interpret grace that way. Apparently, Paul thought that was important. In Romans 11, verse 6, he says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. These are two different things. We need to understand something about how God bestows his grace. In Exodus 33, verse 19, this is what God says, And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And here it is, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. He is gracious to whomever he chooses. Because he is demonstrating his character before all creation in order to gain glory for himself. Not because some particular human is just too important, they're they're too big to fail. That is not his motivation. And let's admit something about this. This is a we're in a safe place, right? We can be honest with each other. Uh, this truth is starting to get a little uncomfortable if this is how God's grace works. It can be, anyway. 
But there's good news coming, so stay, stick with me here. Number three, God's patience. God's withholding of punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. So we need to understand this. God is often referred to as Father, because that's how he chooses to identify himself. But we need to understand this about our our Heavenly Father. God is not the, the unstable Father who explodes off the couch because you spilled something. And if that's the sort of Father you knew, I'm sorry, but don't mistake God for that sort of Father. God is repeatedly, over and over and over again, described in, in Scripture as slow to anger. And I could quote a bunch of different passages. I'll just give you a couple. We don't have to read them all. But Numbers 14, 18, and Psalm 86, 15, and Psalm 145, 8, and Jonah 4, 2 describe God as slow to anger. God is patient with sinners. 1 Timothy 1, 16, Paul says this, but I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Let's recognize something about, we, we know how God acts and interacts with people, don't we? We have a record. God did not immediately kill Adam in the garden. God did not immediately kill Saul, who would be Paul, when Stephen was being stoned. And God has not immediately killed me. God is patient with sinners, and that is some good news. Amen? Why? Why would God be so patient with sinners like us? That brings us to number four, God's love. God eternally gives himself to others. We should recognize that before time began, before there was time, God shared perfect love in the three persons of the Trinity. And now he bestows his love on his people. Psalm 36, 7 says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know everybody's name here, but God does. And he, does, he, he loves you each by name, not in some sort of generic sense. He knows who you are and loves you. Number five, God's faithfulness. God will always do what he has said and fulfill what he has promised. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not man that he should lie, 
or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. People promise things, and it may happen, but it also may not happen. They'll fail and disappoint and let us down. With people, you better get it in writing. You better require a deposit because sometimes it's not quite so certain how this is going to go. It's not how it works with God. God is always faithful to do what he has promised to do. Number six, God's righteousness or justice for our purposes. I'm going to kind of lump those together. God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Psalm 19 verses 7 to 9 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Whatever conforms to God's moral character is righteous and just by definition. This is one of the reasons why if we if we shrink God down to human scale, that's not going to work when we think of God's justice and righteousness. And we know this because we see leaders, political leaders, even church leaders, people throughout history who want to lift themselves up and say, no, no, no. I am the standard of what is righteous and just. If I say it, then that defines right. And everybody knows that, well, that's, there's something just not right about that. It, it, it's a, it, it's a, it stinks in our nostrils when we hear somebody say that. Which the, the, the saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely, Right? And with humans, that's a good rule to live by. But our God is incorruptible. What is right and what is just begins and ends with his moral character. Number seven, God's wrath. God intensely hates sin. In Exodus chapter 32, God has already delivered his chosen people from Egyptian captivity. He's made provision for them. He's taken care of them. And they have sinned against him wickedly. And God and Moses have a conversation. 
It goes like this in 32, 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you, of you, Moses. This is sort of God, the, the equivalent of God saying, Moses, get out of the way. I'm about to do some work with these people. Now, God's making a point. He didn't change his mind. He's trying to get Moses to understand his wrath, what his response, his good and just response is to sin. Now, there was a time in history when mankind had become exceedingly wicked and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the corrupted, violent earth felt the wrath of God in the floodwaters. I'm in history when the sin of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah was very grave. And those cities felt the wrath of God in fire and sulfur from heaven. And if you'll give me just a minute to take a little detour here, It is a popular lie in America to suggest that Jesus never addressed the issue of homosexual sin. And that comes from a wrong understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who has always been. He has no beginning. And Jesus was not distracted or out of the office when Moses received every word of the book of Leviticus. That was from Jesus. And Jesus, as much as the Father, was there when fire rained down on those cities. So he did address that particular sin with fire. That's enough of that detour. How can a loving God also hate? How is that possible? I don't believe that you can say, well, I love children, to use that example, and then be emotionally indifferent to their abuse. If you are, then you don't love children. So the wrath of God is the inevitable and logical response of a loving God in a sinful world. God is merciful, gracious, patient, loving, faithful, righteous, and just. And because God is righteous and just, in response to sin, God is wrathful. That presents a dilemma. How are we to reconcile these attributes? How are we to think about this? How can a gracious and patient God who forgives sin and iniquity by no means leave the guilty unpunished? It sounds like 
You can't be both. How does that work? And in wrestling with these questions, there are three things that we don't want to do. Three incredibly popular things today. They are, if you want to think of it this way, ditches on either side of the road we're traveling that we don't want to steer the car into. And almost certainly somebody is standing up on a stage espousing these things, maybe right now somewhere. Somewhere somebody is probably suggesting that, well, maybe... Maybe some have been, you know, at least good enough that God doesn't consider them guilty, that maybe God just says, well, well, not bad. Everybody messes up a little bit. At least you're not Hitler, right? You clear that hurdle, okay? This is really popular. It's popular today. And apparently it was popular 2,000 years ago because Paul felt the need to address this. And boy, did he. He absolutely destroys this lie as folly. In Romans chapter 3, 9 to 18, this is how he addresses this theological tar pit we want to stay out of. He says, what then? Are we Jews? And let's remember, in that day, I'm a Jew. Good enough. At least I'm not those dogs, the Gentiles. And he's going to deal with that. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He goes at length to wreck this idea that, oh, well, we're the Jews. We're not Hitler. So he says, oh, no, no. And it's interesting that, you know, by the way, a whole bunch of that, Paul's quoting Psalm 15. So apparently that ain't going to fly in the Old Testament or the New Testament or today. So there's no grading on a curve in God's court. Here's another authority on this subject in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that is a bummer. Because uh, not anybody in here on their best day are you even going to come close to making this... Pharisee JV team. So what do we do with that? 
Well, we're going to address that in a minute. But before I get there, second, second pitfall, second theological conclusion that someone is probably proclaiming right now that we dare not latch on to, and that is that somebody may be saying, maybe, just maybe, some part of God is really angry, but there's some other part of God that isn't angry and is just sort of this, you know, soft, loving, forgiving, sort of pastel-colored, easy-breezy guy. And this won't work either because of another attribute of God. This is sort of extra credit, like bonus beyond the others. Uh, This one is God's unity. Now, sometimes, you know, some books will refer to this as God's simplicity. I'm not crazy about that word because in our culture, it sounds like we're saying God's simple or a simpleton. That's not what that means. So I'm going to use unity. God's unity. God is not divided into parts. Yet we see different attributes of God emphasized at different times. So there's not a part of God that's just, (coughs) excuse me, void of righteous anger or love or mercy. God doesn't have multiple personalities. And in particular, multiple personalities that conflict in their nature with each other. There's there's three persons of the Trinity are in perfect harmony and unity. There has never been a two-one vote. Even all that stuff in the Old Testament, all three persons of the Trinity were in hearty approval of everything that even the Old Testament God did. And the last one, the last thing we want to avoid, wrong conclusion. Somebody out there is probably suggesting that maybe, maybe, at one time, God was really angry. But now he's not. He's just forgiving. And this is usually expressed as, well, okay, the Old Testament God's the angry God. And, you know, the New Testament God just got over that and isn't angry anymore. We see this sort of wrong thinking oftentimes reinforced if you have an artist's representation, and we could talk about that, but I won't, of Jesus. There's some curious things that you almost always see with some artist's representation of Jesus. First of all, it is remarkable that this depiction of Jesus looks an awful lot like the artist from an ethnic point of view, right? They, they say, share almost the exact same ethnicity, the artist, and this image of Jesus that the artist has created. But we also see almost always sort of this Soft, gentle Jesus who appears frail and vulnerable. The the depiction presented to us is the sort of guy who's not going to change the tire. He's just going to sit on the curb and cry. Just overwhelmed. That's dangerous to present that before people. So we cannot... By this lie, either because of God's 
immutability. And that's, if you haven't heard that before, it's a $10 theologian word that it just means God does not change. God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Yet God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. We already talked about God's not indifferent to your suffering, right? But it doesn't mean God changes. And oh, by the way, God is merciful and gracious in the Old Testament. There's plenty of that in there. Just ask Lot, or Hagar, or Rahab, or Ruth. And God, even in the New Testament, will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. We could ask Ananias and Sapphira from Acts 5. We could ask the nations that have risen up in rebellion in Revelation. It's all the same God from beginning to end. God does not change, and we ought not believe that lie. And I'm here today to implore you, do not unhitch yourself from the God of the Old Testament, because if you are, then you are unhitching yourself from the God of the New Testament, because it's all the same God. So God does forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, and He will not clear the guilty. And it sounds like we might be in some trouble here then. How are we to understand this? It seems like we're in the midst of a theological dilemma, maybe even an impossibility. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Hmm. Uh Uh-oh. That's concerning because I know some stuff about me. And I don't know a lot about you, but I know that you know some stuff about you. So where does that leave us? Romans chapter 4 verse 5 says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. So how do we reconcile this stuff? If God really is all this stuff, if all these things are true, all simultaneously, what are we going to do with that? And there's only one way we can reconcile all this stuff. There's only one place we can go. There's one place where all of these intersect perfectly And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. How? How does that work? How does Jesus' death on the cross make it possible to justify the wicked and not leave the guilty unpunished? Because it sounds like you've got to do one or the other when we hear that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's worded in a way that we don't talk like that now, but this is important that you get that. 
This is what many theologians call the great exchange. And this is huge. This is the gospel right there in that verse. Good people go to heaven when they die? Well, no one does good. Not even one. I am not good and you are not good. But for those who are in Christ, the guilt and the shame of their sins was imputed to, it was placed on the account of the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And all of the Father's wrath due to that saved sinner, not some of it, all of it, was poured out on his own son who was crushed and killed under the weight of his father's wrath for your sin. Isaiah 53, verses 6 and 7. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then in verse 10 it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The sentence due God's people has been served. It's not God saying, oh, forget it, good enough. It has been carried out. It has been poured out. God's wrath has been satisfied for his people. The sins of God's people have been atoned for. And this is the big deal. On the day of the Lord, when you stand before your God, he can say, this one right here, this one is mine. This one belongs to me. This one's been adopted into the family. I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. This one's not guilty. Is that not good news? So I'm going to wrap up with this. I, if, if I could bring one verse of encouragement from Redemption Bible Church to Redeemer Covenant, um, it would be this. Romans 8.1 Now, let me say this before I read it to you. If you don't know you believe all this stuff, then Romans 8, 1 is not for you right now. If you know I don't believe all this stuff, this doesn't apply, okay? But if you've been purchased with the blood of Jesus, and he is your great treasure, and you are on your way to glory then this is for you. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, your account is clear. Your slate has been wiped clean. The The Father looks upon you and sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks at you. And so I can say this with total confidence, and I'm not that smart. I don't know, I don't know, I'm not a prophet, I don't know what the future holds, 
But if this is for you, then I can, I can look each one of you in the eye and say this. It's all going to be okay. For those who love God, he will work all things together for good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you in the name of your Son. I, I, pray for the, I pray for the saints at Redeemer Covenant. I pray that you would comfort and encourage them today. I pray that you would remind them that you see them and you love them. I pray that your son and his gospel would be preeminent over all the distractions and cares of this world. And I pray that you would bless and, and protect them. Amen.